So the title of this talk is Prayer, Study, and the Mind's Ascent to God. And so I think maybe we should begin with, with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Spirit they may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. So, prayer, study, and the mind's ascent to God. We're here at a prestigious university. Why are you here? Not why are you here this evening, but why are you at a university? Why, what are you doing at a university? What is college for? What is the goal? Uh, important questions that anyone at a university should occasionally reflect on, or maybe more than occasionally. But we could also extend the question of why are you, what are you trying to accomplish with your education? Or maybe what is the goal of your life? Is there an answer to that question? What is the goal of the whole of your life? What does Christianity tell you about that? Actually, that's going to lead us to a discussion of the ascent of the mind to God. The overarching goal of life for Christianity has to do with this. In this life, anyway, coming to know God and to love him, to raise our minds to him, to begin to know him as we pray we one day will know him in full. But the overarching goal of life in Christianity, that Christianity proposes to the world, is very different from the goals proposed by our secular culture. It's also very different from the goals proposed by other religions. And I think it's important, or at least helpful, to start here with a little comparison of what's so unique about Christianity, because um, we can be so accustomed to speaking about, say, heaven, that we cease to appreciate just how radically distinctive the Christian offer is, and what the Christian form of life is aiming at, really, maybe we shouldn't take for granted. It's worth spending a little time uncovering that and comparing it to other possibilities. In fact, the goal that any religion or philosophy of life offers uh, to its adherents has a lot to do with what we think human life is. And I would say, certainly for Christianity, especially what we think God is, or who we think God is, and how he relates to creation. So, for example, our secular culture, or for a secular worldview, generally speaking, there really isn't much talk about an afterlife. Some would be very skeptical about an afterlife altogether. Perhaps others would have a kind of vague sense of eternity, or that after this life you go to a better place, or so you hope. But in a secular frame of reference, the world, the seculum, is the place where you look for your salvation or for your goal to be realized. So if you're secular, then the goal is going to be in this seculum or this age, this world. 
And I think that's why, in a certain sense, politics and economics become so important in such a worldview. And I think it's rather common today that people turn everything into politics, which I find a little distressing. So not only is politics about politics, but now the stock market is about politics, but also literature is about politics, and movies are about politics, and sports are about politics, and you, you cannot get away from it. Um, which is not to say that politics is bad, just to say that it's not everything. And I think there's a, a certain temptation when you begin to think in a secular mindset, that you begin to think that, well, you know, we've got to be able to cash everything out in this world. And politics gives you, in a certain sense, the best candidate, if you abstract from eternity, for what is going to really make a difference in the world. And that can be a reason why people become so infatuated with that. And perhaps you remember we've even had, uh, you know, presidential candidates and presidents uh, who claim to be a kind of savior figure, the one in which we hope. Uh, now, the Thomistic Institute is not about talking about politics. I, I like to talk about God. And the point of the, point of the Thomistic Institute is that we would raise our minds to God. So let's, we, we can start with that acknowledgement uh, of this secular view, but now let's look at some other possibilities. We might think of Buddhism. The goal in Buddhism, uh, now I'm no, I'm no special expert in Buddhism, but as far as I understand it, the goal is not to attain to some kind of personal afterlife, but rather to realize that your individual existence is an illusion, and your personal desires, in a sense, are the problem. The aim for the Buddhist is thus to escape your personal, or transcend, your personal thoughts, your personal experiences, and especially your personal desires, so that in a sense, you reach the state where you cease to be a distinct person. The Buddhist is not seeking a personal union of the mind with God, but rather a kind of negation of the self to arrive at a state of no desire, the state of nirvana, the state where in a certain sense the self is extinguished. And to recognize from the Buddhist perspective that that's the truth about this illusion that I am, I am somehow distinct. Islam offers something very different again. For Islam, God is utterly transcendent. So the Islamic religion calls for obedience to God's commands. There's a heavy emphasis on obedience. As I understand it, Islam actually refers to obedience. And this obedience might even need to be irrational. At least, Allah is above reason and can command things that may seem to us to be unreasonable. So the goal is not to have some kind of union with God with your mind. That's considered to be impossible, given that God is utterly transcendent. Rather, it's to obey what God tells us to do, a God who is above you, and ultimately incomprehensible to you. Pope Benedict XVI, in his famous and famously controversial Regensburg Address, uh, raised this, this very point and contrasted it with Christianity in his understanding of the possibility of the mind to know God. So the Regensburg Address, if you haven't read it, I, I highly recommend it to you. Very interesting, not only for what it says about Islam. In fact, I don't think that was... Uh, Pope Benedict's main point. His main point was to reflect on what Christianity believes about God. 
and God, who is the God of not only faith, but also of reason. So you'll find this on your handout. The first quote uh, I've given you on the handout is from Benedict XVI's 2006 Regensburg Address. And he said this, For Muslim teaching, God is absolutely transcendent. His will is not bound up with any of our categories, even that of rationality. The noted French Islamist R. Arnaldes points out that Ibn Hazm, so this is a prominent scholar of Islam, went so far as to state that God is not bound even by his own word, and that nothing would oblige him to reveal the truth to us. Were it God's will, we would even have to practice idolatry. That is, God could command something that is supremely unreasonable. There's a danger in this view, Benedict thinks, which also has analogs in things that you find in Western thought. And so this is the next part of the quotation after the ellipses there. A view like this might even lead to the image of a capricious God who is not even bound to truth and goodness. God's transcendence and otherness would be so exalted that our reason, our sense of the true and good, are no longer an authentic mirror of God, whose deepest possibilities remain eternally unattainable and hidden behind his actual decisions. This is actually a kind of vision of God that you find among some contemporary, secular, very harsh critics, the new atheists, for example, of Christianity, who think that the Christian God is like this, uh, harsh, capricious, in the end, unreasonable and unintelligible to us. And for them, the life of reason should repudiate a God like that. If we were to stay with Islam for just one more moment, the reward that Islam seeks, you might say the goal that one is seeking, is not communion with God. It's very interesting that that's, that's very explicitly uh, held out by Islam to be impossible. Rather, the promise is a kind of paradise, a garden of delights. Because God remains entirely transcendent, no communion with him is possible, and so the best we can hope for in an afterlife is simply creaturely things, creaturely goods. So God promises us a, a wonderful life, a garden of delights where all of our desires, even bodily desires, what we might consider lower desires, say for food or for sex, where all of these desires are indulged and fulfilled. Now, this is not the view of the goal of life of Christianity. Christianity actually speaks about the mind being capable of union with God, and that this is something that will infinitely surpass what these other philosophies or religious proposals tell us. So, uh, just to summarize very briefly and um, inadequately, something that you already know extremely well, perhaps, but it's nice to just put it all in one paragraph and lay it out on the table, as it were. For Christianity, God is revealed to us by Jesus Christ. He's revealed as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is, the same God who gathered a people to himself, the 
Jewish people, the Israelites. The same God who, through Moses, taught this people his divine name. Exodus 3.16, Moses encounters God in this mysterious epiphany at the burning bush. And God reveals his name, I am who am. Or I am he who is. God is. And this is his name. This is his mysterious identity. The same God who is revealed through the law and the prophets. God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. But above all, we learn through Christ that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is a trinity of persons. So God is personal. And God wants to be in relationship with human persons. He invites human persons into his life. That's what we see already in Moses' encounter with the burning bush and God drawing a people to himself, a people that would belong to him. But we see it revealed even more clearly in Jesus Christ. We see that God saves us through the death and resurrection of the divine son, Jesus Christ, who offers us the hope and promise of forgiveness of sins and resurrection from the dead in order to live in an eternal communion of life and love with God himself. There's a key scriptural text which summarizes this in a very compressed form and which was immensely important, has been immensely important throughout the history of Christian reflection on the possibility of us being raised up to God. The text is found in the second letter of Peter in chapter 1. So it's a text from the New Testament of the Bible. And you've got it on your handout. It's the second quotation there. We can just read it very quickly and then kind of go back and pick out a few important elements. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our, and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. That last line is the one that's so important. Church fathers in the ancient uh, Christian world frequently turned to this passage that we have the promise of becoming sharers in the divine nature. And also St. Thomas Aquinas put it at the center of his account of what is distinctive about the Christian life. So, notice the key themes that you find here. Christ gives us his divine power that pertains to life and godliness. How? Through knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So, this is an extremely important theme in the early church, actually in response to some early heresies about the person of Jesus Christ. In Christ, the eternal Son of God, the Word of the Father, assumed our human nature and united it to himself, united it to the divine Word, to God himself. And in assuming a human nature, he assumed a complete human nature. He did not just assume a body. He assumed a soul. He assumed a mind. Jesus has a human mind. 
which means a human intellect, a human will. This is so closely united to the Word of God that it is absolutely filled with divine knowledge. And therefore, he becomes the revealer par excellence of God to the world. But he also is the best example, the best instance of the raising up of a man to God. So it is possible for a human being, if you can call Jesus a human being, there's a theological quibble about what we can, whether we can say that. We can certainly say he's a man. His being is, is divine, which is why some people don't like to say he's a human being. Well, he's a divine being with a human nature. Some people will, will quibble about that. But we can certainly say he raises up our human nature to unite it with the divinity. And he does it with also the highest part of the human being, which is the mind. So Gregory of Nazianzus, St. Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the great church fathers, which uh, Thomas Aquinas read and, and picked up on this theme from Gregory of Nazianzus, emphasizes that a human mind is joined to the word in Christ, and therefore our mind is elevated and healed by the incarnation of Christ. What previously was darkened with ignorance and sin now has the possibility of sharing in the perfect glory of the eternal word himself. It can be filled with knowledge, grace, and love of God in our minds. So that through Christ, we become capable of doing what Jesus tells us to do. So this is the next text, Matthew 22, 37 to 40, a very famous text. Jesus asked, what is the, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And this is his reply. And we're very familiar with, with it, but have we, do we really think about it enough? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Okay, but that's not enough. And with all your mind. So this is a question for you. Do you love God with your mind? It's a question that Dominicans love to pose because this is a very special, uh, I think, part of the Dominican charism, is to try to use every resource of our mind in the service of the love of God. So Jesus says, this is the first and greatest commandment. All right, let's return to uh, the quotation from the second letter of Peter because we haven't gotten to the best part yet. We've been talking about the knowledge that Christ grants us. And the text goes on. Uh, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. The church fathers and Thomas Aquinas think that this is enormously important. We are offered a share in God's own nature. Our nature can actually be raised up to share in God's nature. And God is truth itself. He is wisdom itself. He is love in itself. So if we share in that divine nature, through the knowledge of Christ, we are being made like God. This is closely tied to the doctrine of the imago dei, that is, the image of God. So, perhaps you're familiar with this idea that we're made in the image and likeness of God, right? Very common, common thing to say. And how are we in the image and likeness of God? 
are we in God's image because we have a physical resemblance to him? I mean, you may be in the image of your father or your mother, and somebody says, yes, you know, she has her mother's eyes. He has his father's nose. Do we say, he has God's nose? Yes. No. I mean, obviously, God does not have a body. Not in his divinity. In Christ, of course, he's assumed a human nature. So we can talk about Jesus having a body. He has a body as man. But we're not talking, when we talk about the image of God, about a physical resemblance. What are we talking about? We're talking about a spiritual resemblance. Especially through a spiritual activity. The activity of knowing and loving. Because God's own eternal and blessed life consists precisely in this, knowing and loving himself. And in knowing and loving himself, he knows and loves all things. God knows the world through himself. He doesn't learn from the world. He's the source of the world. And this is also what we are invited to in the Christian life, a life of knowing and loving God in some measure as he knows and loves himself. So our mind really is made to rise up to God and to begin to share in the divine life, to have a share in the divine nature. This is Christ's promise to us. And we do this precisely as our mind rises up to God. That's, that's the highest part of us. It's the most important part of your sanctification. Your most important part of your journey towards God. It's not a journey from point A to point B a geographic journey, it's a spiritual journey, and it happens above all in your soul, but even more specifically, in your mind. Okay, so with this, let's return back to the title of this talk. Prayer, study, and the mind's ascent to God. Okay, we've talked about the mind's ascent to God, which is quite distinctive in Christianity. So other religions don't propose this kind of thing. But Christianity does. <clears throat> what does this have to do with prayer and study? So let's start with study. For Aquinas, the ascent of the mind is done uh, in important part by the life of wisdom. And so here we can distinguish, you might say, three wisdoms that Aquinas speaks about. He doesn't really label them as such, but I'm giving them this label uh, for the sake of uh, this talk. I'm not the first to have come up with this. I've, I'm taking it from some other Thomists, Dominicans. There's wisdom on the philosophical level. You could say philosophical wisdom. And then there is a theological wisdom. But above this, there is what could be called supernatural or even mystical wisdom. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about those in relation to prayer and study. So how the mind can rise up to God in these different ways. Uh, let's, let's get a little uh, maybe nugget from Aquinas with respect to wisdom. And that's the next quotation, the last quotation on your handout. I didn't want to uh, give a talk, the first live Thomistic Institute talk at Texas A&M, without actually reading from a text of Aquinas himself. So this is from one of Aquinas' great works, the Summa Contra Gentiles, Book 1, Chapter 2. Among all human pursuits, he writes, the pursuit of wisdom is more perfect, more noble, more useful, 
and more full of joy. It is more perfect because insofar as a man gives himself to the pursuit of wisdom, so far does he even now have some share in true beatitude. And so a wise man has said, blessed is the man that shall continue in wisdom. That's from the book of Sirach. Uh, just to pause for a moment here, Aquinas really does think that the life of wisdom is the beginning of, like, beatitude is just a, uh, that's not just a throwaway term for Aquinas. That designates, really, the life of heavenly happiness in the end. We have the beginnings of that happiness by living a life of wisdom even now. So it's, it's perfect, the life of wisdom. Then he goes on, it's more noble because through this pursuit, man especially approaches to a likeness to God who made all things in wisdom. The theme of the image of God being perfected. And since likeness is the cause of love, the pursuit of wisdom especially joins man to God in friendship. That is why it is said of wisdom that she is an infinite treasure to men, that they that, they that use it become the friends of God. Wisdom 7, 14. So wisdom, you might think of in the order of knowledge, knowing something, but it leads into the order of love. As you know God, you know him, as it were, on the inside. You don't just know him at a distance. You know him as you know a friend. And this joins you to God in love. That is communion with God, which happens through wisdom. So for Aquinas, uh, he would emphasize that you know, knowledge is, is first before we get to loving, because you cannot love what you do not know. So you need to know something first about God. And as you know him, you begin to love him. As you love him, you want to know him better. You move closer to him. You, you spend more time invested in, in knowing him. And as you grow in your knowledge, you grow in love. And so it's a, it's a virtuous cycle. And he thinks that this produces a real friendship with God. In another text from the Summa Contra Gentiles, Aquinas says something very interesting. He says, God is so high above us that we can't know very much about him in this life. Uh, but even a tiny drop of the knowledge of the highest things is extremely valuable and gives the greatest joy. Metaphysics is the philosophical discipline that examines reality as a whole, or being as being, what is. And when you reach this level, you are actually now trying to understand what is and why is it? Where does it come from? And it raises ultimate questions that lead you to God. So we want to know the first and ultimate sources of things, the first and ultimate cause of things. We know that cause through its effects, and we're able to arrive at some knowledge that the cause exists through the effects that we encounter. Aquinas thinks that our mind endowed with the light of natural reason, is capable of this kind of reflection. But he also thinks that there is something higher than this philosophical wisdom. So philosophical wisdom gives us a knowledge of causes. The high, and the highest causes 
is knowledge of the highest causes gives you the highest wisdom. You're able to understand the whole of reality if you can understand what causes it, why it exists, where it comes from, where it's going. But uh, So that is, in a certain way, philosophical wisdom. But now I'd like to talk for a moment about theological wisdom. Aquinas thinks that theological wisdom is extremely important and in a certain way higher, well, not in a certain way, uh, definitely higher than philosophical wisdom. It begins with divine revelation. Above all, the revelation that we have through sacred scripture and especially through Christ. To accept that revelation requires, as a presupposition, faith. So faith is necessary to believe that these things that God reveals are true. Aquinas thinks believing them is a reasonable thing to do. But he does think that reason cannot simply prove all the things that faith holds out as true for us. Some of the things that faith tells us, reason can also conclude to, so that God exists. Faith tells you that, so does reason. But there are some things, like that Jesus is true God and true man, or that God is a trinity of persons. These things, faith, uh, you can only know by faith. Reason cannot prove them. Theology, or theological wisdom, begins from the starting point of sacred scripture, of God's revelation of himself, and then applies all of the powers and resources of the human mind to understand what God has revealed to us. And so here you have, in a certain way, the coming together of a life of prayer and a life of study. We've talked about the acquisition of philosophical wisdom, the kinds of things you do in the university, like this one, requires study, the application of the mind to master a certain discipline, to come to know what is real. But this can also be combined with prayer, especially when the object is God, and the object of faith is God himself. So, what we begin believing in faith, our mind then can work on and probe and extract, as it were, the intelligibility of what has been revealed to us. And that is a very rich and, and beautiful experience to have. So it's a good reason to study theology. So I don't know how many of you uh, have ever thought about studying theology, but uh, I'm a theology professor. I started off in a university studying secular subjects, uh, history, philosophy, uh, politics, economics. I went to law school, really enjoyed being a lawyer, loved studying law. But when I began studying theology, I discovered something that I loved even more than all of those things. Those things are wonderful, but theology, in my opinion, is even better. And it's because it brings the mind even closer to the highest truths. The church has a theological tradition, has a body of magisterial teaching that is very, very helpful in this task. So not only studying scripture, but also studying scripture in light of the doctrines and traditions of the church helps us go even deeper into the intelligibility of what God is revealing. And through the grace of God, we may even receive the lights coming from grace that give us access to a higher wisdom and a higher prudence, a prudence that belongs to God himself. And this is where 
really, I'd like to conclude now with some words about prayer and the life of the mind, or prayer and study as ways to raise the mind to God. So it's certainly possible to raise the mind to God by studying things of this world. Aquinas absolutely believes that that's true. You do it by being a good student of chemistry, of physics, of engineering. You study the things in the world, and by doing it well, you come to some real knowledge of reality, the source of which is God. And so there is no problem giving yourself to very, in very full and robust way to the, studying the things of this world. Especially, or, or you might say, in, as long as you remember to refer them to God, who is their source. And that in exploring the things that God has created, it leads you in a certain way to acknowledge the God who is their author. But even more, it's possible to raise the mind to God by studying holy things, the things of faith. But prayer gives the mind another way to access God, a way that for the Dominican and for St. Thomas Aquinas is it's possible to profoundly integrate with a very serious life of the mind. Now, that is, uh, I think, maybe sometimes a controversial thing to say, or at least an unusual thing to say. Because many people think that prayer is basically a matter of the heart, or maybe uh, an act of the emotions, uh, or perhaps has to do with mystical visions or something like that. For Aquinas and for the Dominican tradition, prayer can sometimes involve those elements, but prayer of its essence is simply the raising of the mind to God. Now, it's the raising of the mind to God whom you know in some measure in faith, perhaps only very, very imperfectly, perhaps even uh, only with the prayer of the skeptic, which is to say, God, I don't know if you exist, but if you do exist, speak to me or help me. That's a perfectly fine prayer to say if you're a skeptic or an agnostic. I would encourage you, if, if you find yourself in that position, to make that prayer, because in my experience, God does answer those prayers. But especially for someone who already knows God in some measure, knows him by faith, is in a state of grace, is baptized, lives in some way, trying to seek God's will and to configure your life to God. Prayer is something, has much greater possibilities. The raising of the mind to God, speech with God, a communion of your mind with God. Now, sometimes people talk about prayer and holiness. Aquinas actually doesn't typically use that terminology. It's not bad terminology. Uh, it's just not the way St. Thomas speaks, he speaks rather of the language of sacred scripture, what we saw in the second letter of Peter, a sharing in the divine nature, a participation in the divine nature, a greater and greater likening to God himself, which is accomplished above all as we know and love God. So Aquinas thinks that one of the most important things you can pray for is to grow in the theological virtues yourself. It's very good to pray for other people, of course, but it's sometimes 
just as important to pray for yourself that you would grow in faith, in hope, and in love. Why? Because when you pray for someone else, you cannot prepare that person to receive what God wants to give. When you pray for yourself, you dispose yourself to receive what God wants to offer you. Now, very interestingly, the longest question in the Summa Theologiae, that's Aquinas' great masterwork, the longest question, a question is organized into sub-questions uh, called articles, but the question is kind of the basic unit. The longest one is on prayer. In a certain way, it's one of the most important topics, you might say, if it, at least if you judge it by the length of the question. And a capital truth that Aquinas asserts in talking about prayer, which might be surprising to some people, is that prayer is an act of reason. It is your mind speaking to God. So Aquinas says, you know, somebody with the power of reason can command some acts. You can command, in a way, you command your, your, your mind commands you to do something. You can command a subordinate to do something. But reason can also ask something of a superior, and that's what Aquinas thinks prayer is doing. We are asking God for something, and we're asking someone who is above us. And he then has a long discussion of how it makes sense that we would ask God to do something if he's determined from all eternity what, what in fact will happen. Um, uh, just uh, to inject a, a moment of levity into an otherwise serious subject, there was a Dominican uh, once not perhaps a very pious uh, Dominican priest who was celebrating Mass and came to the point in the Mass where you would offer petitions for various intentions. And he was introducing that. And, you know, you've probably, if you're Catholic, you've been to a Catholic Mass, you've probably heard this kind of thing, you know, say something like, you know, in faith, let us offer to the Heavenly Father, uh, you know, for what, what we need and what we desire, something like that. And then the lector gets up and offers, you know, reads the petitions. So this priest one day says, God knows what we need before we even ask him. But we're going to tell him anyway. I, I, I don't recommend uh, doing that at Mass. Uh, but there is something true about that. God does already know what we need. Why then do we pray? Actually, this is one of the reasons why Aquinas' question on prayer is so long. He's taking up what is actually a very interesting kind of philosophical or religious question. The short answer, um, we don't change God's mind by our prayers. Aquinas does not think that. But sometimes, Aquinas says, God wills from all eternity, you might say in his divine immutable will, he wills from all eternity, that he will only give certain goods in response to our asking for them. And by asking for them, we dispose ourselves to receive them. So prayer is actually part of God's providential plan. Why does he do it that way? Why doesn't he just give us the good things? Because he doesn't want us to remain far from him. He wants us to draw near to him. He wants us to raise our minds to him. And so part of God's reason for giving us good things when we pray is that we would more and more raise our minds to him. He is infinitely good, and he wants nothing more 
than to share that goodness with us. In fact, that is the reason why God has created us. He is not made better off by having made the world or having made you or me. There's nothing I can give God that he does not already have. The wonderful thing is he wants to give you good things. Even more, he wants to give you nothing less than himself. And he wants to give that to you, above all, in your mind. So, conclusion. There's a, a book written by a Carthusian. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Carthusians. It's a Catholic religious order, a monastic order. There's a movie about them called Integrate Silence, which is uh, it's a documentary. It's a, it's a beautiful movie if you're a film student. It's also very good to help you fall asleep if you're, uh, if you're having trouble falling asleep because it's like a two-and-a-half-hour movie with like, basically no dialogue. Um, it was shot all, all in this monastery with no artificial lighting. So it's all just the light of the sun. So it's cinematographically, it's amazing. But uh, the Carthusian life is a life of being alone as a hermit, living only for God. So there's this little book uh, written by a Carthusian, which I read, that uh, says that um, God is perfectly simple. Perfectly simple. We are complicated. So our spiritual life really is not to become more complicated, more refined, to know a whole bunch of new things. It's actually to enter more and more into God's divine simplicity. So even our spiritual life is not a matter of entering into some mystical knowledge that gives us complex secrets to the meaning of life and the universe. That's the kind of popular imagination of what mystical knowledge is about. But this Carthusian says that's not what it's about at all. Rather, it's to be divested of our complexity, our being complicated, which often involves our sin, our resistance to God, our selfishness, and to enter into the perfect simplicity of knowing and loving God. So that means growing closer to God really is very simple. It's discovering the true meaning of what we already know. For example, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it can be summed up when we will cry out nothing more than Abba, Father, with our minds. So, for the Dominican, this is in a way the goal of the intellectual life. To apply our minds with great rigor to all of the endeavors set before us, but to see in them all the possibility of coming to know God, who is the source of all things, and in fact is the end of our earthly lives. Thank you.